Welcome to The Wild Huntsman. This week's episode is going to be a little bit abbreviated, and it's just me talking about a book on Lord Ripon and his times and his particular culture. Late 19th, early 20th century British guy did a lot of shooting. Was considered the best game shot of his time and for a reason. I hope your holiday's safe and happy. I hope you get out into the field. I hope you get a chance to read some great hunting books and talk some hunting. But mostly I hope you're out in the field and experiencing it. So with that said, let's get into it. been doing some reading recently as I'm want to do and uh, I've been reading T.H. White The Goshawk I don't know if you've read The Goshawk yet it's important it's an important work in sporting literature and in literature itself he wrote The Man Who Would Be King was a real significant guy in literature in his time and the whole Camelot uh, stuff came from his work and reading it now knowing his biography and the troubles that he had it's probably a different experience than if I just approached it without knowing all that background all that context he had a difficult life he was uh he was a tortured guy and probably pretty unpleasant to be around in a lot of ways particularly during his later years but uh, a man of a certain genius, and Gossok is worth reading. It's a book about falconry, and I'm not a falconer. I don't know any falconers personally. I hope to interview one one day, but it's interesting. It's um, it's a little disturbing, this book, because of his uh, clash with this animal and his sort of self-imposed time in a hermitage just him and this goshawk and becomes a battle of wills more than a partnership which you hope it would be these days in which i believe it is these days from the other stuff that i've read susan mcdonald wrote h's for hawk interesting insight into a woman's time of grieving her father and the loss of her father and training a goshawk at the same time and she goes a lot into the biography of white and of different ideas and the history of falconry and makes it you know just beautiful and an interesting read but that's sort of uh the second book that i'm reading at this time the the first book is a book called ollie ollie's about the life and times of frederick oliver robinson the second marquis of ripon or ripon I don't know how to say it. I'm not English. It was written by a guy named Rupert Godfrey. and um, It's like a small private printing, 1,500 copies. And the reason I looked this up is that Lord Ripon has been referenced throughout my life in a bunch of things as the amazing game shot of his time, the amazing shotgun shooter of his time. He shot 
a matched set of Purdy shotguns and uh, a matched set of three, I believe. And these shotguns are beautiful in and of themselves. And he straddled that time in between black powder and modern gunpowder. He was in that time when it was incumbent upon people of nobility and higher society to attend game shoots and driven shoots. You know, that's that's an important cultural thing in Great Britain, certainly, and uh, on the continent, in Europe. It's something that happens in the United States. I have mixed feelings about it. I, I think we need to be cognizant of the language that we use, and I think the English are good at it. It seems like they specified the difference. I don't know, I'm beating around the bush here. They differentiate between a hunt and a shoot. And I think stalking might be different for them as well. I don't know. That would seem to fall into hunting for me, but I think they need uh, either dogs or horses for it to be a hunt or maybe both. But these were driven shoots and bird shoots, and you're going to have partridge and grouse and the European woodcock and pheasants. And they're going to come over in great numbers, and there's going to be a specific style of shooting. Those who know uh, shotguns and the evolution of their stocks. If you were to buy uh, an early 20th century shotgun, the drop is going to be significantly increased from what you're used to and what you could buy in a modern shotgun because of their style of shooting. And, you know, you see it carried on somewhat, uh, a little bit, Maybe not the posture and the Churchill method and the instinctive shooting methods. If you went to a Orvis uh, shooting instructor, shotgun coach, he'd be teaching you a, a modified Churchill style. Different head position, maybe? If you watch these guys, I'm going to put something up on Instagram with a picture of uh, Lord Rippon shooting uh, with a couple of his reloaders standing next to him. And uh, it's a little different than we have today. I have a book by Churchill as well on uh, shooting shotguns. and looks a little different than what we'd see today in modern uh, game shooting, certainly, but even in sporting clays or competitive shotgun shooting. It's a different position. Probably not doing the best at describing that. What I thought was fascinating about the Churchill book was that uh, he referenced... This is a book from, you know, the early 20th century. It's an old hardcover. And he's selling himself and his shooting style and method in the book. And so, you know, it's an interesting read from someone who likes shotguns and likes the idea of shotgun shooting. And he was a great shot and he came up with a great system. But what's interesting is that he has a short chapter on muscle memory. I thought that was a um, contemporary thought the thought of muscle memory. I know in going through some of my uh, schoolings and instructions and trainings, you know, it went from 2,000 repetitions to most recently 10,000 repetitions for you to form muscle memory and that just being where you can complete an action without use of conscious thought. And Churchill was writing about that in the early 20th century and talking about um, training aids. And his training aid uh, of choice at that time was uh, a high-speed 
movie camera that he could slow down into slow motion to show people their flaws. So it's, uh, it's interesting, it's charming, it's made me smile to see it. You know, we think that everything we do is um, new. It's a new thought. There's nothing new under the sun, right? The technology changes. That's why I'm talking to you via internet connection and podcasts and that sort of thing. But I don't know if the idea of hitting a moving target by flinging something at it has changed all that much. A little bit. Like the like I said, the technology, black powder and uh, Damascus barrels that were beautiful to behold and would blow up in our face today if we put one of our fast steel rounds through it or something. These guys were shooting pretty slow-moving <laughs> rounds, uh, but Lord Rippon somehow able to pull it off. And in fact, uh, famously, uh, and I think Godfrey goes into it in this book, he famously uh, didn't jump on the bandwagon for modern gunpowder, slow-burning gunpowder, and thought it was inferior at first. And it probably was, technically, right, as new things come along. There's growing pains and there's problems right away that, you know, are resolved by engineers and smart people eventually. But he was uh, he was sold eventually on modern gunpowder and transferred over to it. But if you think about it, with the black powder, you know, kind of moving that that group of pellets at that slow pace, it was what he became used to and what he would be able to connect with. And I'm sure the early um, the early examples of the modern gunpowder shot shell failed and and had issues and hang fires and that sort of thing at the beginning as things are wont to do so this book is fascinating in that it's an attempt to flesh out lord rippon and flesh him out by talking about his life they the author godfrey went into some great detail and went into some great research and sort of obviously a real passion project for him because this guy's legendary in shotgun shooting circles and particularly in driven bird shoots in great britain and i'm conflicted that might be my that might be my just natural state at this point in my life i may have just uh entered into a state of being conflicted because he's a great shot there's no doubt about it but godfrey's game total for lord ripon between the years 1867 and 1923 a grand total of 557,688 animals taken. This this includes uh, a couple of rhinoceros, 11 tigers, 12 buffalo, you know, a lot of things. Deer, red deer, grouse, partridge, pheasant, woodcock, snipe, duck. There's a lot of... Uh, animals that he killed. Hares, rabbits. There's an <laughs> there's a line for various, which I, I don't know what that was. He's he's um, thought the man was focused. He's thought to have spent time when not out uh, specifically shooting game, to be lying on his back in his gardens with a 410 shooting dragonflies. This is a man who's uh, driven. Yeah, no pun intended. This is a man who's focused and intent on being a great game shot. 
I don't know how I feel about the amount of animals that that he took in his life. They're, you know, I don't know. Maybe at 400,000 he could have slowed up a little. <laughs> Maybe at 100,000, I don't know. Killed over half a million animals in his life from what we can tell from his game journals. He kept pretty fastidious notes, but there's going to be some things in wrong columns and some discrepancies. You know how it is taking notes in the field or trying to concentrate on anything. And he was pretty focused on just getting the animals. He also drew and uh, had an artist's eye for the surroundings and, you know, found beauty and in those surroundings. So I can have compassion for him and get behind him on that sort of thing. One of the royals on getting his game totals delivered, apparently he sent out how many animals he killed that year to his uh, social circle, referred to him as a bloody butcher. So maybe he was that a little bit. And I think he can be that and be a great game shot. He was a quiet, retiring man. Uh, his wife had a uh, had the big personality. He married a woman later who was a um, person who was adept at the social niceties and the parties and the entertaining. Where he wasn't. He wasn't uh, very sociable. He was just quiet and... One has to think, just waiting to get through an evening at a party to get out in the field. He was uh, competitive, and that can be good and bad. I said I was always conflicted. I'm conflicted about that. As a young man, I was hyper-competitive, and I still have that in me. I know it's still in me. I, I still feel it. But I, I saw it as a flaw, right? A character flaw to a degree. At some point, it's one of those things that's good. It's a good servant. It's a terrible master. Competitiveness. If you can use it to serve you, to accomplish uh, greater things, to accomplish goals that you wouldn't otherwise be able to accomplish, that's good. If it starts to rule you and how you look at uh, things outside of a specific sphere, then that's not so great. He was uh, hyper-competitive when it came to shooting and I don't think you could kill over 500,000 animals if you weren't if you weren't somehow trying to prove something to yourself or to the world around you there's a period of time where Godfrey adeptly points out that his game journals and his notebooks and his record keeping became merely numbers and he stopped drawing and he stopped uh, writing about the beauty of the surroundings or the special things that he saw. In my role as amateur amateur psychologist, I would say he was becoming um, less romantic, as we all do, as some of us do when we get older. But also maybe just doing what he was doing because that's what he was great at. Maybe he wasn't as driven or as motivated by the time of field, time amongst nature, or the time immersed in nature as he was 
just racking up numbers. And maybe it came back a little bit. Gottfried, uh, call him Gottfried, like Gilbert Gottfried. Different guy entirely, Rupert Gottfried. Uh, sort of talks about that, but we all sort of ebb and flow in our passions and in our life. There are times when we're super enthusiastic and that goes away for a while, it comes back. Maybe it comes back. I think about that sometimes with hunting and with other parts of life is that it's not always about the ecstasy, right? The the buck fever, the, the highs, that adrenaline rush. That is loving the way hunting makes you feel. Not necessarily loving hunting itself. Gordon McQuarrie wrote a great book. Well, he wrote uh, great stories that were later assembled into books. Stories of the old duck hunters, and one of the stories was where his honor, the president, uh, Al Peck, McQuarrie's father-in-law, is sitting on a stump uh, while a younger Gordon McQuarrie drives a small patch of woods to drive a deer to the president and president's an older man and he's out there freezing but he dressed warmly for the occasion on this in this particular story and falls asleep and the buck gets by him i might be butchering this story but as i recall the buck gets by him because he falls asleep because he's too comfortable and the moral of the story is you have to suffer you have to be out there and endure the cold And you have to endure the harsh realities of the hunt in order to be successful. So sometimes hunting can be miserable, right? You can be physically suffering. You can be bored to tears sitting in a stand, taking a stand on a drive even if it's going to be a long drive. I'm a terrible stand sitter. I'm I'm the worst at it. I was in one today. I'm good for about 20 minutes at a time before I've got to move a little bit. That makes me less successful than I would be if I didn't uh, fidget. I'm not an ambush predator in that style. I'm probably more of a persistence hunter. I'm okay in a duck blind. You can move in a duck blind. You can cook eggs if, if it's a palatial duck blind. My rambling dissertation on the joys of hunting. I was uh, miserable in a stand yesterday as well and a little fidgety but the conditions were good and the rut is still on and there's hope so i sat in a stand in upstate new york wasn't bad it was in the high 30s and i was comfortable i wasn't exhausted and i didn't fall asleep but the same doe that had come by my stand several times this season came by and the rut is still on so there's hope and apparently at this point she's receptive because there was a a spike small spike followed her maybe a minute and a half two minutes behind her and while I was judging if the spike was legal I was not above shooting the spike I just wasn't positive it was legal while I was in my shooting lane here in New York State and upstate New York they have to have uh, one antler of three inches in length. So that will tell you what uh, the trophy potential of this buck was that I was looking at that I couldn't immediately discern if it was legal or not. So 
uh, I decided it wasn't worth trying. And the buck moved on. And a couple of minutes after that, a much larger buck came by. And uh, as I was saying with one of our recent guests, uh, Dwight McGee, this buck just appeared. And it's very large for this area and very... Um, a very large symmetrical rack, and uh, it was, you know, king of the forest type of buck. And my whole attitude changed, and the suffering went away, and I, you know, it became all experiential at that point. So maybe I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I did have that experience. This might sound like a terrible excuse, and it is, but... First, let me tell you that I let the buck get out to about 65 yards away from me. From the closest it was, was 18 yards. It got out to a little over 60 before I could get a good broadside shot. Before I could get a good shot, good lane, where the potential of putting this animal down with one shot was good. And I was pretty cocky about the whole thing. I I felt very (laughs) confident that I was going to drop that buck and, you know, maybe it would have gone on for a few yards and I would have had to track it. But I I didn't have any doubt in my mind that I was just going to shoot this buck. Now, climbing into the stand, stepping back in time, I was tying uh, the gun to a cord and I'm shooting open sights and it's an old Winchester with open sights. And I thought, That's funny. It sounded like I heard two clicks, and that feels like the rear sight. I looked at it, and I said, I don't remember where the rear sight was, but I think I've moved it by two clicks. I wasn't sure on the two, but I knew there there was more than one click. So I decided to change it to do the, the field repair, the field expedient repair, and adjust my sight back by two to where it was. Apparently, I just kept exacerbating the problem because at a chip shot, a little over 60-yard shot with a good rest and a calm, incompetent shooter, the round sailed directly over the buck's back. It looked a little nonplussed, moved off into the shrubbery where I didn't have a clear shot and stood there looking around wondering what just happened. Oh man, sometimes I'm an idiot. I don't even know what to say for myself. (laughs) That is terrible. But uh, as we talked uh, with Father Vitale earlier, and I think he mentioned his prayer that includes uh, missing completely an animal and not injuring it if you're going to miss it. So I, I was blessed in that I missed this animal completely. Very blessed that I did not injure the animal and cause it suffering, undue suffering. But uh, the bit is in my teeth now, and now I have a goal, just to find this buck again and uh, right the wrong. This morning I went to the range, and uh, yeah, I was shooting. That uh, gun was shooting very high, so I really just screwed that one up royally. All right, well, that's that's enough about me and my screw-ups. This has become a confessional. If you get a chance, look into Ollie, the book. 
You can look it up online. I, I like using bookfinder.com. Bookfinder.com gives you sort of a rundown on all the internet booksellers or a good percentage of them. And condition reports and, you know, used or new and hardcover, softcover. I almost said sheep chipping, but cheap shipping. And uh, they're not supporting the podcast. I don't know these people at bookfinder.com. Neither do I know uh, Rupert Godfrey, but it's certainly worth a read. He's a he's a towering figure in hunting from this time period. And you'll hear him reference if you're reading something in Grace Sporting Journal or you're reading something in Field and Stream or I know Gene Hill referenced him a few times. So if you're reading your Gene Hill, and please do, that guy's a genius. Breaks my heart half the time, has me laughing. We're we're in a golden age of outdoor writing right now, and we don't know it because we're in it, but I think we are. But we're still missing uh, a Gene Hill. There's not ever going to be someone to replace him. And I would say the same with uh, Gordon McQuarrie. Hopefully we'll get to talk about him a little bit more in future episodes with uh, folks more knowledgeable than I. Lord Ripon was a man of his time and an impressive shot. Rupert Godfrey's, uh, Rupert Godfrey, I keep putting a D on the end of it like uh, like I'm speaking about Gilbert Godfrey, but it's Rupert. Rupert Godfrey's written uh, probably the best book that could be written about him with what we know and the amount of research he's done. And it goes into a lot of detail about his life and shows him as a fleshed-out human being, which when you hear the numbers and the accomplishments, you know, that's not all he was. He was a, a man of his time and a man that leaves me conflicted. Over 500,000 animals. I, I don't know how I feel about that. All right. I hope you enjoy the show, and I hope you have a great holiday. Talk to you soon. You can send an email, or you can contact me on Instagram. Both those methods are available in, the, in your podcast app in the information section.